0: Welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, February the 22nd, 2020. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik, and here's our first story. It's entitled Applied Engineering Building Ready for Students, 50-year-old facility meets UNI needs after expansion. It's written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, dateline is Cedar Falls. The world has changed dramatically over the last 50 years, but until recently, one thing had remained consistent the look of the University of Northern Iowa Industrial Technology Center, but that now has changed. Renamed the Applied Engineering Building, it has been transformed by a much needed facelift and expansion. The facility is getting ready to welcome back students. On Tuesday, UNI officials showed off the $44.7 million renovation project, $40 million of which was funded with state dollars. The building has grown from 64,000 square feet to 109,000 square feet since ground was broken in June of 2022. Originally built in 1974 to educate shop teachers, the remodeled building is different with floor-to-ceiling glass walls that bathe rooms in natural light. The expanded facility will give students The space required for computer classrooms and laboratories while allowing them to work on real-world projects with industry-standard technology. We really wanted the entire building to look and feel like a classroom, explained Mike Zwanzinger, a UNI Assistant Vice President and Director of Facilities, while pointing up at the ceiling. We have a lot of wiring throughout the building that is labeled so the students can see how everything is put together. We also wanted to take into consideration the technologies of tomorrow by having 3D printers and other tools. Lisa Riedel, head of the Department of Applied Engineering and Technical Management, said the entire building at 2900 Campus Street highlights the work the college does. Before the renovation, a lot of people didn't know where we were. Now we have these large windows throughout the building. These buildings and the sidewalks around the facility give us the opportunity to better showcase our work. Once we get the printers and everything in here, I'm sure people will be interested," Riedel said. The Department of Applied Engineering and Technical Management houses a variety of programs training students for the highest need job sectors in Iowa. Majors include technical project management, manufacturing engineering technology, construction management, graphics, and technology education fields. It's often hard to recruit quality applicants who are able to keep up with emerging technologies. Nate Bryant, Assistant Project Manager at the UNI Metal Casting Center and Foundry 4.0 Center said the new facility can prepare students for what is ahead in their field. We've gone through the fourth industrial revolution recently, which is tied to automation and using control systems to automate previously manual tasks. We are now teaching students to interface with the digital world instead of the analog world, Bryant said. We are planning to have classes operating in this space the Monday after spring break. Movers will start to move the equipment out of the back labs and into the classrooms, and then we will get everything connected," Zwan Zinger said. UNI students will be completely moved into the new space by December. The other article from the front page of The Courier today is entitled, Iowa Senate Passes Religious Freedom Bill. Democrats argue bill gives legal cover to all kinds of discrimination written by Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough of the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. Whether proposed legislation would strengthen protections for religious expression in Iowa or provide legal cover for discrimination was at the heart of an expansive and passionate debate Tuesday by state lawmakers at the Iowa Capitol. The proposed legislation, Senate File 2095, is called by supporters the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under it, the government would have to prove there is a compelling state interest in pursuing legal action against individuals who claim their actions were an expression of religious freedom and then that any legal remedy against them must be narrowly tailored. Supporters say the bill is needed because, in their view, U.S. Supreme Court rulings have eroded religious freedom protections that were passed into federal law in 1993. The federal law applies only to the federal government, but at least two dozen states have passed state-level versions of the legislation. The Senate debated the proposed legislation for nearly 90 minutes Tuesday before approving it, with all Republicans voting in favor and all Democrats voting against. This is a defensive measure, said Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux Center. The courts have eaten away at religious freedom nationally, and that applies to our state as well. This is a defensive mechanism saying we need to prioritize the First Amendment. During debate, Democrats warned that such a law would give individuals legal cover to discriminate against others, especially minority religions and LGBTQ people, using religious freedom as a defense. Religious freedom is important. Those of us who are members of minority religious communities are particularly cognizant of that, said Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City who is Jewish. The rule of law is also important. We cannot create exemptions that encourage people to pick and choose which laws they will follow. Weiner introduced an amendment that would have inserted into the bill protections against discrimination as prescribed in the Iowa Civil Rights Act. That proposed amendment was defeated along party lines. The amendment would clarify that RFRA is intended to protect religious freedom and at the same time avoid RFRA from being used to discriminate or to impose one person's or group's religious beliefs on others and thereby sidestep non-discrimination laws," Weiner said. It would restore the original intent of the RFRA laws, ensuring that religious freedom is used as a shield, not a sword. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, who managed the bill in the Senate, said the measure is needed because he believes in the original intent of the 1993 federal law, which was passed by a Democrat majority Congress and signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton. He said the Democratic Party's motivations have changed in the three decades since that law was passed. Schultz also pushed back at Democrats' arguments that the legislation would lead to state-sanctioned discrimination, calling some of the arguments during debate drama soup. He also asserted there has never been a case of a similar religious freedom law being used to target LGBT and whatever else is accepted anymore. It's never been that. It's never been used for that, Schultz said. We're restoring the original intent of the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Versions of Iowa Republicans' religious freedom bill have been introduced in the Senate annually since at least 2018. This is the first time the bill passed out of the chamber. With its passage out of the Senate, SF-2095 is eligible for consideration in the House. Counties and townships would be allowed to devote money to religious organizations for public services under a bill that passed out of the House with bipartisan support. The bill, House House File 2264, would allow church-managed organizations to receive public money if it is for a project that benefits the public and does not require any religious or secular services, educational programs, or participation requirements. Representative Ann Osmondson, a Republican from Volga, said the bill would allow public support for projects like food pantries and homeless shelters. The bill passed Tuesday near unanimously in the House with a vote of 93 to two. Democratic Representatives Eleanor Levine of Iowa City and Megan Srinivas of Des Moines voted against the bill. This is a good bill. It's also going to be able to stop individual nonprofits, excuse me, to help individual nonprofits, said Representative Akeo Abdul-Samad, a Democrat from Des Moines. It's also going to be able to bring cities and nonprofits together to make sure that they're serving the people. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it will need to pass and be signed by Governor Kim Reynolds before becoming law. Next is an article by Jeff Reinitz entitled, Waterloo Man Guilty in Halloween Shooting. Jurors have found a Waterloo man guilty of shooting an acquaintance in the stomach on Halloween. The jury deliberated for about two hours on Monday before finding Christopher Wortham Abraham guilty of willful injury causing serious injury in the broad daylight shooting of Marcel Rose on South Street. The panel also found him guilty of being a felon in possession of a firearm for the 9mm Tanfoglio pistol police found in the bedroom of his home on November the 10th, but acquitted him on a similar charge for a Springfield XDS handgun found in another room during the same search. The Tanfoglio, which contained Abrams' DNA on the grip, was linked to the shooting by spent shell casings found at the scene. Sentencing will be at a later date, and Abram faces sentencing enhancements because of prior felony convictions. Prosecutor says Abram approached Rose as Rose was walking around 4.20 p.m. on October the 31st and fired three shots. The gunman fled the area, and Rose was taken to a nearby hospital. But for medical care, Mr. Rose would have been dead in a few days. Assistant County Attorney Brad Walls said... The bullet entered Rose's intestines and he still suffers from the injury. On the stand, Rose said he was kind of certain Abram was the shooter. Abram testified in his own defense, denying he had any role in the shooting and denying ownership of the guns. He said other people had access to the house. In another article also written by Jeff Reinitz, Trayer woman arrested in 2021 slaying of husband A Trayer woman has been arrested in the shooting death of her husband in 2021. On Monday, officers with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation and Tama County Sheriff's Office arrested Karina Sue Cooper, age 46, at her home on K Avenue on a charge of first-degree murder. Bond was set at $1 million. Authorities allege Karina Cooper had told two others she wanted her husband, Ryan Roy Cooper, dead and could shoot him in the face. Then, on June 18, 2021, Tama County deputies were called to the home at about 4.35 a.m. and found Ryan Cooper in a recliner with a gunshot wound. Karina Cooper was sitting on top of him, court records state. An autopsy determined he had been shot twice in the face and a spent 22 caliber shell casing was located nearby. No guns were found near the body. The investigation is ongoing. Anyone with information related to this investigation can contact the Tama County Sheriff's Office at area code 641-484-4111, the DCI at area code 515-725-6010, or email dciinfo at dps.state.ia.us. Apparently, Mr. Reinitz was busy because every article on this page is written by him. Our next article is Man Arrested in Gun Search. Police have arrested a Waterloo man after finding a handgun while searching his house on Monday night. Michael Dequavius Davis, age 29, was arrested for felon in possession of a firearm. Bond was set at $13,000. Officers with the Waterloo Police Department's Violent Crime Apprehension Team served a search warrant at 1902 Clifton Avenue around 5 p.m. on Monday and found a 9 millimeter pistol with a laser sight and extended magazine in a clothes basket. Authorities allege Davis is prohibited from handling firearms because of a prior felony conviction. Davis was also arrested on a warrant for a misdemeanor eluding in an October 31st pursuit that passed through backyards in the 3100 block of Hammond Avenue. Next, man charged in lottery fraud. Police have arrested an independence man for turning in forged lottery tickets at a Waterloo store. Waterloo police arrested 37-year-old Jeremiah Wayne Sherwood on Monday for four counts of lottery fraud. Bond was set at $5,000. Authorities allege Sherwood took losing poll tab lottery tickets <clears throat> attached bogus faces, making them appear to be winning tickets, and then redeemed the tickets at Prime Mart 7, 1309 Lafayette Street in January 2024. The wins ranged from $20 to $100. Investigators with the Iowa Lottery Division determined the tickets were fake and employees at the store identified Sherwood through a photo lineup, according to court records. Waterloo Home, hit by gunfire... No injuries were reported when a barrage of bullets hit a Waterloo home Monday evening. Neighbors called 911 shortly before 9 p.m. after they heard numerous gunshots. Police found a home at 212 Kofi Avenue had been struck by gunfire, and then they found 10 spent shell casings on the sidewalk in front of the house. Investigators seized the casings and bullet fragments from inside the home. No arrests have been made in the shooting. Fatal fire victim named... Authorities have identified a Quasquitan woman who perished in a Sunday morning house fire. Firefighters pulled 69-year-old Catherine Marie Crawford from her house in the 700 block of East Cedar Street and attempted life-saving measures, but she was ultimately pronounced dead, according to the Buchanan County Sheriff's Office. The cause of the fatal fire remains under investigation. According to the Sheriff's office, a neighbor noticed the fire at about three ten a m while letting dogs out and called nine one one Deputies and firefighters spotted flames coming from the bedroom windows and soffits when they first arrived and because of heat and smoke, crews were unable to enter the home until the fire was contained. The Buchanan County Sheriff's Office was assisted at the scene by the qua. Fire Department, Independence Fire Department, Winthrop Fire Department, and AMR Ambulance Service. And our final article from this page written by Jeff Reinitz, former UNI student faces new harassment charges. Authorities have added charges against a former University of Northern Iowa student accused of harassing school officials and threatening to shoot a university employee. The latest charges allege Aisha Ahmad Nyala, age 25, recently of Altoona, used an Instagram social media page titled UNI Yoga Club to harass Allison Raffanello, the Dean of Students, and Heather Harbach, UNI's Vice President of Student Life. On Monday, Nayala was arrested for 11 counts of stalking by use of technological devices, one count of misdemeanor first-degree harassment, and 11 counts of misdemeanor third-degree harassment bond was set at one hundred and twelve thousand dollars. The UNI Yoga Club Instagram page says the club is a place for students to come together to increase their knowledge and skills in yoga. Posts on the account started in 2021 with yoga related content but then shifted in July 2023 to focus on posts critical of the university's handling of sexual assault complaints. In court records investigators singled out posts that named UNI staff and called them dishonest and abusive, claimed they support racism, compared them to slave owners, and featured photos of them with their families. In investigating the case, Cedar Falls police noticed Nyala had linked her personal Instagram account to the yoga account, Records State. Monday's arrest was the latest in charges against Nyala. In January, police arrested Nyala after she allegedly placed a phone call to the Iowa Board of Regents about a complaint she had filed and allegedly threatened to shoot someone in the head if something wasn't done. In early February, she was arrested again, this time for alleged harassment of UNI officials over the Facebook social media platform. Now we come to an article entitled, Cedar Falls Council Declares Building a Nuisance. Supporters plan to address issues at the Space 109 downtown. This is written by Andy Malone. In a situation that was unforeseen just weeks ago, a beloved downtown art gallery was unanimously declared a nuisance Monday by the City Council. A health emergency on January 12th led to an inspection of the apartment above the Space 109 at 109 East 2nd Street. Prior to that, building official Jamie Castle told the courier the gallery's condition was not on the city's radar and had not been the focus of any recent complaints. What was discovered were issues inside the small living quarters, many of them structural, bleeding into the gallery, according to Castle, leaving its future in question. Owner John Jacobs, who reportedly lived in the apartment since 1972, died January seventeenth at the age of 77, Kendale Alquay, Al- a space board member, was named executor in the will and expects to secure the deed this summer when the estate closes. Alquai made a promise to Jacobs to save the building and organization and was joined by supporters in the council chambers to officially agree to submit a plan by March 18th with a timeline for addressing the lengthy list of issues. I don't disagree with any of the needed repairs. I just hope that you take some understanding into consideration on my game plan. I didn't realize that I was going to be in this position a month ago, she said. A lot of planning and brainstorming has already been completed by Kwai and those who've assembled to maintain the gallery's future possibilities. The space wants you to imagine what it could be, a gallery that includes everyone, free of cost, a studio that sparks creativity, imagination, and growth, a place to connect, create, and explore, she said. The building reportedly dates back to the mid-1800s. However, it was placarded shut with a red danger notice on January the 15th, a few days before it was last used, said Alquay, after it was deemed unsafe for human occupancy. There were loads of structural concerns expressed by Castle as well as issues like the lack of heat in the building that led to the start of the condemnation and removal process authorized in chapter 7 article 2 of the city's code removal is a last resort however it doesn't mean that we want to have the building condemned and torn down we are acknowledging an issue a life safety sanitary conditions issue that we want to bring forth to the council and work together with the property owner to either have the issue resolved or, if it comes to it, have the building demolished," Castle told council members. Castle said it's been years since demolition was pursued with a nuisance property and has not been a chosen course of action in the six years she's been with the city. Approximately five properties have been the focus of these condemnation hearings since 2021. Part of Belkwai's vision includes transforming the space from a mixed-use building into one without the residential component. She's picturing an inside doorway leading to the stairwell, now accessed through a separate door outside. That would lead to a new upstairs studio where the apartment is now. Issues with the building range from deteriorating stairs, ceiling, and floor to mold and plumbing problems as well as water and smoke damage. There was also electric work seemingly not completed by a licensed tradesman. We actually recommended only one person going up the stairs at a time because we feared for how much weight they could hold, said Castle. Once we entered the upper floor, we realized that the ceiling was falling, she added. There were multiple buckets of water collecting water from the roof where it was leaking. You can see the ceiling falling down. It was actually being held up by a two-by-four and a broom. In response to a question castle noted the building is not an immediate hazard to neighbors though the building official also said she hadn't completed a full-on structural analysis and that one would need to be done by the owner's contractor money will be an issue al kwai confirmed afterwards that fundraising will need to happen for at least a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollars in repairs knowing the estate does not offer enough and they'll be looking for help from anyone for tasks ranging from spreading the word to cleaning and grant writing. She's already committed to renting a dumpster and been in contact with Blackhawk Roof Company about possible work. The gallery had been open seven days per week and capable of hosting some 35 to 45 artists work before the forced closure, the latest event in its decades of history. In addition to the questions, Council Member Hannah Christman expressed encouragement and support for the work already completed I think you should really feel some pride in all the work you've done so far, she said. This is obviously going to be a big challenge, and I think if you stick with it, there's a huge possibility here. I know I've heard from a lot of people who are willing to give their support, so don't be afraid to ask for it. Those who would like to help or learn more can visit the Gallery's Facebook page and reach out via direct message. Go online to www.facebook.com slash the Space 109 City Hires New Waterloo Housing Authority Director The City of Waterloo selected Lakeisha Veasley as the new Director of Waterloo Housing Authority, pending City Council approval. For 13 years, Veasley worked the operation threshold locally as the Housing and Fair Lending Program Manager, among other roles. Since 2018, she has been a Community Inclusion Strategist at Virgit and Credit Union. Her extensive nonprofit board and volunteer experience includes serving as Iowa Habitat for Humanity Board President, Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines Council Member, City of Waterloo Planning and Zoning Commission Director, and former Iowa Homeowner Education Project Board President. Beasley has a Bachelor of Arts as a double major in Political Science and International Relations from Wartburg College and a Master in Public Policy from the University of Northern Iowa with an emphasis in state and local government. Now here's a reminder that you are listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All materials heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to today's obituaries, and first, we remember Leonard L. Castor, Sr., age 93, of Independence, Iowa, and formerly of Jessup, Iowa, who died Sunday, February the 18th, at Buchanan County Health Center in Independence. Services will be 11 a.m. Thursday, February the 22nd, at White Funeral Home, Jessup, Iowa, with an in Cedar Crest Cemetery at a later date. Visitation will be for an hour before services Thursday at the funeral home. Online condolences may be posted at www.white-mounthope.com. Next we remember James A. Jim Mud Sr., age 86, who died Tuesday, February the 20th at his home. Mass of Christian burial will be 10:30 a.m. Saturday, February the 24th at St. Patrick Catholic Church with interment. In the Grace Greenwood Cemetery, both in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd, at Mud Advertising, 915 Technology Parkway, Cedar Falls, with a vigil service at 7 p.m. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Now we remember Tessa Michelle Smith, age 21. Who was called into the arms of the Lord on Saturday, February 17th at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City. Tessa was born at Allen Hospital in Waterloo on September the 18th, 2002. She is the daughter of William Bill and Stephanie Smith of New Hartford, Iowa. She attended Dyke New Hartford High School, graduating in 2021. Mass of Christian burial ten thirty AM Friday, February twenty third at Saint Patrick's Catholic Church, Parkersburg, with burial at Oak Hill Cemetery, New Hartford. Public visitation from four to seven PM Thursday, February the twenty second at the church. Visitation also one hour prior to the Mass Friday at the church. Haggerty Wachoff Grarup Garup funeral service on South Street Waterloo is in charge of arrangements. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the AT Children's Project or to the family. Online condolences may be left at ww.haggertywaychoffgrareup.com. Next is Marcella C. Sally Weiss Bandfield, age ninety-seven, who passed away Wednesday, January the thirty-first at home in Auburn, Indiana. She was born in Afton, Iowa. March 21st, 1926, to Leo and Helen Vosky Weiss, whom both preceded her in death. A celebration of Marcella's life will take place in Fort Bayard National Cemetery, New Mexico at a later date. Memorials can be made as a donation in Marcella's memory to Parkview Home Health and Hospice, 1900 Carew Street, Suite 6, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Four six eight two five, or to the congregation of the Humility of Mary, eight twenty West Central Park Avenue, Davenport, Iowa, five two eight zero four. Now we remember Shirley A. Thomas, who passed away Wednesday, February the fourteenth, at Allen Memorial Hospital. She was born in Iowa City to Harry and Margaret Thomas on March twenty second, nineteen thirty nine. She was the fourth of seven siblings. She attended schools in the Cedar Rapids area and was employed at Covenant Hospital, Chamberlain Manufacturing, and in other healthcare industries. The memorial service will be at 2 p.m. Saturday, February 24th, at the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, 55 Newell Street in Waterloo, Iowa. And finally, we remember Craig Allen Shutty age 72 years old of Jessup, Iowa, who died Sunday, February the 18th at Mercy One Covenant Medical Center, Waterloo, Iowa. Funeral services will be 1030 a.m. Saturday, February the 24th at the First United Methodist Church, Jessup, Iowa, with burial at Mount Hope Cemetery, Independence, Iowa. Visitation will be from 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at the White Funeral Home, Jessup, Iowa, Memorials may be directed to the family for charitable donations. Online condolences may be posted at white-mounthope.com. That's mthope.com. Now we have some death notices. First, Caleb Nicholas Enos, age 21, of Waterloo, who passed away on February 16th. Funeral services will be held Saturday, February 24th at 10.30 a.m. First Christian Church in Vinton interment will be in evergreen cemetery in vinton arrangements by van steenhois then funeral home of vinton ronald ron Dew, age 78 of rural laporte city saturday 7th, uh, february 17th funeral services will be held at 10:30 a.m. saturday february 24th at Locke in laporte city Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, February 23rd, also at Locke, Condolences may be left at www.lockefuneralservices.com. And Charles Fisher, age 76, of Waterloo, died Monday, February 19th. Memorial services will be held Saturday, February 24th at 11 a.m. at Nazareth Lutheran Church, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, with visitation one hour prior to services. Arrangements by www.LockFuneralServices.com Since there are no opinions in today's paper, I'll continue reading other local news. And this article is entitled, Cedar Falls Tax Plan Projects Collections Up to 8.8% But Final Levy Rate is Likely to be Lower. It's written by Andy Malone. The City Council gave early consent Monday to a tax rate for its proposed fiscal year 2025 budget that would lead overall property tax collections to soar by 8.8% over last year. Collections would total $25.9 million compared with the $23.8 million approved last year, according to Finance and Business Operations Director Jennifer, Jennifer Rodenbeck. The committee meeting marked the first time the Council publicly reviewed its draft budget. While there were challenges developing the $98.3 million budget or the $114.8 million budget if certain transfers are included, Rodenbeck said the city would not see any dramatic changes to city services or personnel if approved as presented. The proposal is based on previous requests by city departments and conversations with elected officials. It would support new expenses as well as As well, like a second school resource officer and construction of a roundabout at the Prairie Parkway and Viking Road intersection, the collection calculation is based on a proposed tax rate of $11.93 per $1,000 of taxable valuation. That's viewed as the maximum possible rate for the new budget beginning July 1 and may be lowered by council members as the process unfolds before the April 30th deadline. The $11.93 rate is 4.65% higher than the $11.40 rate approved last year after rounds of discussions, but is touted as being one of the lower tax rates among the top 20 most populous cities in Iowa. Right now, individual homeowners would see a 6.49% increase on average in the city portion of their property tax bill after factoring in the county property re-evaluation of 20%, another average, and the dip in the state rollback from 54.65% in the current fiscal year to 46.34%. That drop in the rollback, the percentage of a property's value that can be taxed, limits how much the city could receive from property valuations increasing by $748 million, or 19.67% of which five hundred and sixty two million dollars was driven by residential properties councilmember Daryl Cruz who was at the center of the push last year to bring that average individual increase down to zero advocated Monday for reducing the starting rate earlier in the process than a lot of his colleagues councilmember Dustin Ganfield supported him by motioning for a $11.90 rate but the proposition was defeated by a 5-2 to two vote. I liked to see a little lower number for our max levy rate because it forces us into finding some places to compromise, Ganfield said. The early proposal would have seen a rarely used program's funding cut in half. It offers assistance to those interested in converting rentals into owner-occupied housing. Ganfield also went as far as to suggest using general fund savings to help fund the program and lowering the tax burden even more. This way we keep the rental conversation and it allows us to have that conversation about how to massage it into efficacy, he said. I did have some conversations with some realtors around town and they say our rental market is in good shape and we're not going to endanger them by deconverting some rentals opponents wanted to see budget revisions discussed during a future public hearing when residents can weigh in other council members also went to ex- want to explore creating a more successful rental program at the current funding level of about $100,000 we're talking about a reduction in the budget as we have it right now so something has to be cut in order to get that number lower said council member Aaron Hawbaker whether it's the rental conversation or something else it doesn't matter I think we need to have public input. There seems to be interest on the council in lowering the rate at some point, but Cruz suggested the overall flavor of the council is not to debate which items to cut this early in the process. I'm not fundamentally opposed to reducing the overall number, but I also don't want paint to paint us into a corner, said Council Member Chris Lada. I do think Councilmember Cruz's point is well served, that the rental conversion program does seem to have been an underutilized program. That said, I would appreciate some more public input before we move forward. House File 718, a bill that's gotten attention because of its impact on local government, changed the budget process this year and beyond. Cities will send a letter March 5th to all taxpayers with the rate and further breakdown on the impact though Rodenbeck is worried about the presentation being a bit confusing. One reason is it's not personalized to each individual situation. A special hearing outside a regular council meeting will be held on the rate on April 1st. The budget itself must be approved by April 30th. The bill brings about another notable change. That's the consolidation of the city's library and band levies Underneath its general operations levy known as the eight dollar and ten cent levy Though they're being phased out and the full extent of the impact won't be felt until fiscal year 2029 Rodenbeck also noted how the impact won't be solely felt by the library and band. What we like to make sure people understand is it doesn't just affect those two she said When you take a piece of pie and you are having to bring more pieces in there the pie doesn't get bigger just something else has to shrink. That's why we've been having meetings with departments and letting them know that this isn't just about the library. This could have an effect on everybody. In another local article, Waverly's West Cedar School will become elderly housing. This is written by Maria Kuyper. Once the school year ends, a building that serves as a place of learning will become home for those in vulnerable populations. The Waverly Shell Rock Board of Education unanimously approved the sale of West Cedar Elementary to the Waverly Municipal Housing Commission on February the 5th. The school is located at 221 15th Street Northwest and was sold for $5,000. The project will expand the Commission's campus of low-cost apartments for the elderly, disabled, and handicapped. The organization owns three other complexes in the same area. There are a total of 116 units in Waverly Homes, Waverly Manor, and Red Cedar Homes. If the commission keeps the current school building, 10 to 15 units could be created. Another option is to raise the structure and build new apartments. A few residents spoke against the sale of the housing to the housing group, saying the property would be better for a private school. Inspired Life placed a $70,000 bid for the property in hopes to turn it into a private Christian school that would partner with the Waterloo Christian Schools. A letter to the board proposed a school for children in kindergarten to 8th grade aiming for 100 students during the first year. The enrollment cap was listed at 200. The board immediately rejected that bid in a December meeting with members saying they didn't want to create competition for Waverly-Shell Rock Community Schools. Another bid came from Matt Hibbard to turn West Cedar into a community art center for $5,000. The board also received two bids from Margareta Carey Elementary School, located at 229th Avenue Northwest. Inspired Life bid $40,000 to turn it into a private Christian school, the same as the West Cedar bid. Bartle's Lutheran Retirement Community bid $40,000 to expand its housing for senior citizens. The Christian school proposal was immediately rejected there as well. Officials said it did not comply with the deed restriction. Mike Kalvig, the district's business manager, said the deed for the property states that it cannot be used for any school purpose. A public hearing for the Bartles proposal will be held on March the 4th. In other business, the school board approved the 2024-2025 school calendar with a start date of August 23rd and an end date of May 30th. A redemption of school bonds and an amendment to an escrow agreement for the advanced payment toward general obligation bonds this will not affect tax rates and a contract with ISG for professional services for $75,000 to consider renovations at the high school in regards to accessibility in another article written by Andy Malone CF resident asks city councilman to resign a well-known figure called out Council Member Daryl Cruz during the City Council's public comment time Monday for his arguably unmaintained rental properties around the University of Northern Iowa campus. The resident went as far as to ask Cruz to resign if he does not choose to be more honest and ethical with his comments as an elected official who does not report the College Hill properties on his conflict of interest statement. The longest serving Council Member wrote none known on the latest rendition of the disclosures that were accepted unanimously January 2nd by the council and addressed by the resident, Bob Manning. Cruz said in a telephone interview he has no plans to resign and strongly dismissed Manning's characterization of him while acknowledging he had some work to do on the properties. Manning referenced several properties, three of which sit across the street from UNI President Mark Nook's house on College Street. The courier confirmed they are owned by Cruz under his name, not a separate LLC, and have rental permits per city and county databases. They include 2510, 2516, and 2522 College Street, and 813, 808, 802 through 804, and 801 through 803 West 28th Street. Manning spoke on behalf of himself not the Cedar Valley Home Builders Association, where he serves as the executive officer. Any group, or even his wife, a retired city official, whom he jokingly said after the meeting is someone who does not like controversy. Perhaps this is why he is so firmly lobbies against the College Hill visioning plan, as as this could boil over into requiring his properties to be fined or repaired, Manning told the council in his prepared remarks. We understand that the council is looking into revising how the conflict of interest statement is handled. We applaud them for that, he said. But this is not Washington, D.C. This is Cedar Falls, Iowa, where we don't think we have to legislate to the nth degree. We agree that's necessary because personal ethics should play a big part in how our council operates. But... Alas, it appears we do have to legislate this when one individual tries to sweep things under the rug. Manning vowed to take up the matter with the city attorney and code enforcement office. It's not the first time Manning has been vocal and direct on an issue, nor is it the first time he's had a beef with Cruz. In one instance, Manning publicly criticized the Planning and Zoning Commission for voting against the revised and controversial Autumn Ridge housing plans, because of the need for more places for people to live. He also reached out to the Courier with objections to how Cruz handled his unsuccessful push at the 11th hour for a roundabout at the 6th and Main Streets intersection as a part of massive reconstruction plans. College Hill has been of great interest to landlords when it comes to the visioning document that was recently readopted by the Council to guide the area's revitalization. Several months ago, attorney Ishan Vapay spoke to the council on behalf of the concerned citizens of College Hill, a group of primarily landlords, against the visioning document. They, along with crews, fear the area will promote dense housing and not enough places to park if controversial zoning is adopted, as some feel is a given with the vision document. Neither Cruz nor any other council members offered up a public response to Manny's comments uh, Monday. I actively do maintenance on all my properties, abide by all the rental codes. The properties always and consistently pass rental inspections as well as insurance company inspections, said Cruz in a statement. In no way, shape, or form am I a slumlord. Slumlords refuse to improve their properties. I put many thousands of dollars into improvements over the years at my properties. Cruz noted over the phone a thought. the uh, He thought the attack was tied to his recent pushback against the controversial zoning known as form-based zoning and his contention it takes away from property rights. I've filed the form for several years and this has never been a problem, he added. Manning's comment also marked the second time that the conflict of interest form was the focus of dissatisfaction in the council chambers last year was the first time the disclosures were intentionally made public as part of a meeting agenda though anyone could request them as an official public record former mayor rob green previously called out former council member dave sires for being the only one not to file to fill one out i make my disclosures to the city council, not to the administrator or the city attorney, because it is the city council that is the decision-making body for the city," Sires said at the time. His rationale was a reflection of how Sires felt the city's bureaucrats were in charge of the city and not those elected to office. Now we turn to the sports page and our top story is titled, Headed Back to the Well, Cedar Falls Tops Prairie, Headed Back to 5A State. written by Ethan Petrick. The stakes were set in November. Of the 40 teams in Class 5A, eight would advance to the state tournament in Des Moines with a shot at the state title. Cedar Falls head coach Greg Groen made that clear to the Tigers at the outset of the 2023-2024 season. On Tuesday, the Tigers became one of those final eight teams advancing to the 2024 Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union Class 5A state tournament with a record of 44. or with a 45-35 win over Cedar Rapids Prairie. It's a long season, Groen said. There are a lot of ups and downs in the season. To get to this point and to be able to win against a really good team and make it to state, I am extremely happy for the girls and the team. I'm happy for everyone that is involved with this program. The girls have really earned this. The win, Cedar Falls' 20th consecutive win, proved to be a defensive battle, That mirrored the Tigers' 2022-2023 regional final loss to West Des Moines Valley. Groen said the Tigers used that loss to earn a state tournament berth with a victory in Tuesday's Class 5A Region 7 championship. We realized what it takes to get to state, Groen said. I think that was a little wake-up call. This is the type of intensity and this is the type of defense you have to play to get there. The girls understand that and understood that coming in. This group keeps a level head, never too high, never too low, just trying to keep that level head and keep moving forward. We saw that out of them tonight. Cedar Falls guards Karis Findlay and Grace Knutsen opened the scoring as the Tigers got out to a 4-0 lead in the early stages of the first quarter. Prairie senior McKenna Murray powered a 5-0 surge for the Hawks to take the lead as the 6-foot guard managed all five points in the run. A mid-range jumper from Knutson and a triple from Finley put Cedar Falls back in front 9-8 to eight at the end of the first. The Hawks and the Tigers continued to grind things out on the defensive end as Cedar Falls managed just six points, but limited Prairie to one field goal in the entire second quarter. Finley scored the first basket of the frame, pumping pump faking her defender at the three-point line before slashing to her right, sinking a layup, drawing a foul, converting on the three-point play opportunity. Finley added another free throw nearly three minutes later to swell the lead to 13-8 and finish the half with a game-high nine points. Junior guard Sophie Stanek beat the buzzer, snaring an inbounds pass with 1.5 seconds on the clock and managing a layup at the horn to give Cedar Falls a 15-10 lead at the break. With, offense struggle, with an offensive struggle throughout the open two quarters, Finley said it felt a little bit like the Tigers' 37-20 loss to Valley last season during which the Cedar Falls shot 15.6% from the field. However, with memories of their previous loss flickering in the background, Finley and Knutson said the Tigers used halftime to boost each other's confidence. You cannot ever doubt, Knutson said. You have to keep your confidence up. You know it will come eventually. You just have to keep working, keep shooting. You cannot ever put your head down. You have to keep your head up. We still had confidence in ourselves, Finley said. We knew our shots were going to go in the next half, and we just got there. According to Groen, Cedar Falls, though confident, entered the second half in search of a player to step up and help extend the lead on offense. Prairie played really well defensively against all of our players tonight, Groen said. They are a good defensive team. I had a lot of confidence in our defense to keep getting defensive shots, but we just needed to extend that lead a little bit. Gabby Hanks, who scored 10 points in the second half, answered that call. After a scoreless first half, the junior guard sparked the Tigers offense with a three-pointer in the opening minutes of the half. Anaya Burks added a layup on the next Tiger possession to give Cedar Falls a 10 20-10 a to 10 advantage, with 6.13 to play in the third quarter. Trailing 25-12 following a Knutson three-pointer, Prairie mustered a 7-0 run to trim the lead to 25-19 in the final minute of the third quarter. Yet, with momentum shifting in favor of the Hawks, Knutson beat the third quarter buzzer. Ranging to her left, Knutson unleashed an off-balance three from the left corner to put Cedar Falls ahead 28-19 and send the home crowd into a frenzy. Knutson, who finished as Cedar Falls' leading scorer with 16 points, said the shot ranked among the top of the all-time moments in her career. As for the shot selection, once you are feeling it, you are feeling it, Knutson said. It was nice to see that go in. The big-time shot did not surprise Groen. She knows that she has that ability to shoot that ball, Groen said. I will never second-guess it. She is just a player that has put a lot of time and hit a big shot. With Prairie's momentum halted, Hanks put the game away in the fourth quarter, scoring seven points on a three-pointer, a layup, and two of two showing at the charity stripe. Following the win, Hanks said she told Finley that she intended on making her presence felt on offense prior to the game. I knew I needed to do something besides defense, Hanks said. I knew I needed to get something else going. It was a big deal, especially getting those points for my teammates. After Hanks' seven fourth-quarter points leading the way, Cedar Falls outscored Prairie 17-16 in the fourth quarter to win by 10 and earn a spot in the 2024 Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union Class 5A State Basketball Tournament. The Tigers enter the state tournament as the seventh seed and will face second-seeded Davenport North in the 5A quarterfinals on Monday, February 26th at 1.30 p.m. I have a feeling that this is the type of group that is just not just going to be satisfied going down to state, Groen said. They are going to want to do something when they are down there. They are going to enjoy this tonight. We are going to enjoy it. Then we will back, be back to work tomorrow. In other Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union news, Jean Berger stepping down. Jean Berger, who has served as the Executive Director of the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union since 2016, has announced her retirement. The IGHSAU has partnered with Grundmeyer Leader Services to facilitate the search for the organization's next Executive Director. Berger, who served as the fifth Executive Director of the nearly 100-year history of the IGHSAU, retires after a tenure marked by dedication, innovation, and substantial progress. Since her appointment in 2016, Berger not only made history as the first female executive director, but also distinguished herself as a visionary leader dedicated to enhancing opportunities for young female athletes across Iowa. Jean Berger's tenure has been defined by her unwavering commitment to the mission and values of the IGHSAU said russ adams board of directors president we are immensely grateful for her service and wish her all the best in her well-deserved retirement it has been my honor to serve as the executive director of the ighsau and to work alongside some of the most talented staff administrators and student athletes i'm proud of what we have accomplished and am grateful for the confidence our leadership has always shown in me i am excited for what lies ahead for the iowa girl said Berger. The search for the next executive director of the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union will begin immediately. In men's college basketball, Iowa takes down Michigan State. Peyton Sanford scored 22 points. Ben Cricky added 18 points to go with a season-high 14 rebounds. And Iowa beat Michigan State 78-71 on Tuesday night in East Lansing, Michigan. Iowa took the lead for good late in the first half and had a 16-point advantage early in the second. A 6-0 surge cut the Michigan State deficit to 70-65 to with 2 minutes 31 seconds remaining. Sanford scored three points, and Owen Freeman added a dunk to help the Hawkeyes pull away. Sanford and Cricky were a combined 14 for 26 shooting overall and 10 of 12 from the free throw line. Patrick McCaffrey added 14 points for the Hawkeyes. Iowa, which beat number 20 Wisconsin 88-86 in overtime on Saturday, has won consecutive games for the first time since winning three straight in January. The Hawkeyes have also won five of the last six meetings against the Spartans. In USHL news, pair of Blackhawks to Alaska. Defenseman Carson Reed and goaltender Calvin Bacon have each committed to the University of Alaska midway through their first seasons with the Waterloo Blackhawks. Reed has played in 37 games and is one of five Hawks with a plus-minus differential of at least 10. Bacon has won 18 games, which currently ties for fourth in the USHL. Adding the pair to Waterloo's college commitment list, there are now 21 active Hawks who have chosen the NCAA Division I institution. Carson and Calvin have been important contributors so far this season, Blackhawk heads coach Matt Smaby said. This is an opportunity they have both worked hard to earn. It's great to celebrate a day like this, but I'm sure they would both tell you that they have a lot more work they want to accomplish in Waterloo. That brings us to the end of today's Waterloo Cedar Falls career. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the blind.